this is what I want to do. What do you want to do in life? I want to be a YouTuber. Okay, so tell me what you did on the morning that you recorded your YouTube video. Oh, well, I got up and I scrolled through Instagram for an hour on my phone and I didn't really sleep too much. I got four hours sleep the night before. And you think, okay, why is that that people <laughs> don't have the same finesse? They don't treat their chosen <laughs> pursuit yeah. with the same level of sacredness that people do when it's in athletics. Where could people be if we treated our chosen pursuits in life playing the drums or being a podcaster or being a YouTuber or being an artist or being a sales manager or being a mum or being a dad. Like what if you treated that with the same level of obsession that athletes treat their pursuit? Episode 24 of All In With Adam. I'm here with the the uh, very handsome Chris Williamson. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So I know a good bit about you. You and I don't know each other personally, but I've been a listener uh, of your podcast for at least a solid year now. It's in my regular rotation. Um, you've had some amazing guests on, and I've learned a ton from conversations that you've had with a variety of your guests. But for anybody listening to this podcast, what's the quick breakdown of, of uh, who you are and what you do, man? Yeah, so I'm a podcaster from the northeast of the UK, a place called Newcastle, which is the final city before Scotland. Uh, I've been a club promoter and a business owner in the UK for a long time. I went on reality TV a couple of times, got a blue tick on Twitter and some free charcoal toothpaste and all that big stuff. And then um, decided that I wanted to, how do you say, satisfy my intellectual curiosities. And a podcast seemed a pretty good way to do that. And then three and a half years ago, started my show. We're three and a half years in now, 370 episodes. People like Jordan Peterson and Seth Godin, James Clear, Aubrey Marcus, Robert Green. You know, it's a, a big group of people that really interest me. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun road. It's funny you mentioned Aubrey Marcus. That might actually be the very first. Uh, episode that I heard of yours. I heard an episode of him that he did with Jordan Peterson, uh, which was absolutely fantastic. So I became an Aubrey Marcus fan. And then I believe through that, uh, that was how I actually found you. That was the rabbit hole that I took uh, to arrive at the Modern Wisdom podcast. Your name comes up most often uh, in, in my world when people ask me what my goals are for this podcast. And what I'll normally tell them, I'll ask if they've, they've heard of Chris Williamson of the Modern Wisdom podcast. And every once in a while, people have. And I say that is my two to three year goal. The position you're in is one that I would like to be in uh, in a few years' time. So thank you for functioning as the, the relative goalposts for, for this project for me. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been really cool to see someone who has, and I don't mean this in a negative context, but you know, your, your podcast is not so big that it's, it's, it's impossible to imagine how a, a younger podcaster might be able to get there, right? So it, it's, a, it's a cool goalpost because... Looking at Rogan and saying, maybe I'll do that one day, the likelihood is very likely you won't. Um, very few people will ever reach you know, a level like that. So it's nice to have some of these relatively smaller podcasts. And for, for me, you've always functioned as just a really, really good goal to have. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Right, let me ask you this. When, you know, I'm a professional drummer by trade, and 
after I did all of my touring and albums and all of the, the normal things a professional drummer would do, I began teaching full-time, and then I went online, and for about the last 10 years, I've been a full-time online musician. And in that world, in drum world, I've got a, a, a large fan base. I've got a lot of credibility in drum world. And whenever I've, over the last 10 years, especially in recent history, if I ask anybody to collaborate with me, if I want them to come on my drum podcast or do a musical project or make a little Instagram clip, the likelihood that they'll say yes is extremely high because I have a large following. Um, and so I, I, it's an easy game to play. I kind of know what, what to expect most of the time. But it's been really jarring to start a brand new project, a new podcast, where I have no credibility. I have no reason to expect that, um, that any of my fans would come over and listen to me talk about anything not related to drums at all. And so you were one of the first people where I sent a message asking if you would be interested in doing this podcast. And I really, I felt something I hadn't felt in many years, which was like, why on earth would you say yes? Why would, why would you say yes to a podcast like this? Uh, I know what it's like to have a quarter million fans and followers and have someone with 600 followers ask me to come and do a project with them. And that answer in drum world for me is often no. So this might be an odd question, but can I ask why you said yes to this podcast? It seemed interesting, man. I respect people that send messages like yours. And this is a piece of advice for anyone that wants to get something from someone else. If you keep your message short and concise and you ask what you want very quickly, like I just respect it. Maybe you caught me at the right time on the right day. I don't know. I can't say yes to every to every podcast. Um, but yeah, like concise messages for invites for stuff. I still keep mine. It's like you can read it in 10 seconds. Hi, I want to bring you on my podcast. This is why you should do it. Can we make this work? That's it. And I still use that same thing now. So yeah, I think that was part of it. And then maybe maybe you got me on a good day. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad I got you in a good day for sure. And, you know, maybe the, the wording of my message was crafted because I've gotten so many of those messages. And there are some where it's, you know, six paragraphs from a stranger is not going to work. I'm, I'm not going to finish the message or if it includes a life story, a biography. Also, you know, it, probably going to be a no. But anyway, well, I'm deeply appreciative you took the time, man. I, I think uh, we both know the reality is you're helping me more than I'm helping you. But that favor has been extended to me uh, many Wait times. Wait until I want to learn I, the drums, man. I'm planning on learning the drums in a couple of years <laughs> time. and I'm going to call this favor back in. Dude, absolutely. Have you ever played any music at all? Oh, God, my mum forced me to play the violin between the ages of like 11 and 14. And I was in orchestras and stuff like that. But, okay. Uh, no, that was that was the <laughs> end of my musical career. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm always surprised when parents like either choose or permit the violin. It is one of the most annoying instruments to like overhear someone practicing. It's not pleasant. Drums aren't it's either. It's easy but... to get wrong. Very, very. And it's just a, a, it's a cringy sound, a bad violin. It is not pleasant at all. Yes. Yeah. So any desire to ever return to music? Would you ever play again? Oh, dude, I'm, I've got you now. I've got you in my <laughs> corner. I'm all over it. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's a blast, man. It's a blast. I, I have found, though, like... I don't know, music changes as I've gotten older, as I've crossed that 30 mark. The novelty of being a musician feels a little bit more apparent. It's not so enthralling. It feels a, feels a little bit more, more artsy than I remember it feeling growing it up uh, or gr growing up playing music, right? Um, and I, it reminds me of something that, that I heard you say in a, a recent podcast that there's sort of a, 
I believe you called it an intellectual menopause that sort of happens around this 29, 30 mark. Um, and I've experienced that in the last couple of years for sure, even where my interests are changing. Um, I crave more order. I'm, I'm a lot more risk averse than I used to be. And the word menopause is quite interesting because women have a scheduled biological event where these behavioral changes are built in to their existence. It's on a biological clock. Have you ever considered the fact that that there might be somewhat of a biological clock for men? Or is it merely like a like time being conscious, you know, after two decades or so, you, you seem to have these change of interests? I don't know. If there's not something biologically happening to everyone, then we're, we're all just synchronist beings, you know? Like everybody's in simpatico, all of my friends that get toward the end of their 20s and they realize that the sort of life that they were living, the ones that are a little bit awakened, the ones that are, are growth-minded and are trying to really sort of get after it, they just realize, man, like the sort of life that I was living just doesn't serve me anymore. And I think, so I had, speaking of Aubrey, I had Aubrey on the show last night and we spoke about something very similar to this. And we were talking about the fact that your persona, the person that you are to the outside world, it sort of crystallizes around you. It's like a crab's shell. So whereas the person that you are, your sort of truest essence, the, the, the um, synthesis, the distillation of your ego is constantly changing. You know, you yesterday versus you tomorrow, like Adam last month versus Adam this week versus Adam next week. And the same with me. It's always just dancing slightly and moving and changing. But the persona that you have outwardly to the world, that's a little bit more staccato. That's more like iterative, right? And it happens kind of like a shell. So you, you sort of attach yourself to a sense of identity for a while. And there's this person like I am Adam, the young touring drummer. And then I am Adam, the online drumming coach. And then I am Adam, the whatever, whatever, whatever. But it doesn't happen as fluidly as the inner version of you. But because we attach a lot of sense of self-worth and we actually confuse the persona that we are on the outside with the person that we are on the inside and then people start to get to know us and that sort of reinforces this outward display of who it is that we are to the world. What ends up happening is that you actually limit your growth because the persona is there and you're sort of outgrowing the shell. And then after a while, it stresses and stresses and stresses and cracks and breaks and you need to dispense with it and get rid of it. And I think that there might be something biologically going on. Like, for instance, I've noticed that I don't find kids as completely annoying as I used to. I'm 33 <laughs> and yeah. um, my business partner's had a child every two years for the last four years. So he's had three. So the first one came and I was like, "This he's loud and he stops my friends from seeing me on a weekend because I want to spend time with my buddy and he's busy with this kid. And, I was like, uh. and then the second one came and I was like, oh, He's all right, but still, like, I'd quite like to have beers on a weekend. And then he's just had one last month. And this one, I'm like, oh, you're cool. You're quite he's nice. I'm cool. like, whoa, what's going on? Like, so <laughs> I'm seeing inside of myself 29, 31, 33. I'm watching it happen within myself. So there is definitely something going on there. There's not an equivalent of the doting father versus, you know, the the, the woman whose biological clock's ticking, who still hasn't had kids or whatever. Um, but there is something happening there, I think, with, with regards to men. Um and also, especially with guys, perhaps less so with girls, the the persona that you've built up, especially in your early 20s, especially if you've come from like a normal working class background, a lot of the things that you adopted as where you took your sense of self-worth from and what you considered to be success, like you didn't know better. You were 20, 21, 22 years old. And then, right, okay, I'm going to form my identity around that. 
and then it gets to 25 and you start to go really it's like getting on the session on a weekend with my mates and going out and partying and like notches on a bedpost and how much money I've got and what clubs I'm seen with and you know what photos I'm taking in and how many followers I've got online like is this really what I've got to offer the world uh yeah probably it is and then you get a little bit closer to 30 and you're like okay like this just (laughs) isn't quite right and you see an equivalent in fitness so a lot of guys that I know that have trained bodybuilding which is kind of a lot of lads first introduction to the gym because the barriers to entry are so low and they want to feel confident and strong and powerful like a man so they start doing bodybuilding and then they get toward 25 27 29 and they think fuck like i get tired going up a set of stairs like this isn't (laughs) sustainable i can't touch my toes so they start doing mixed martial arts or brazilian jiu-jitsu or yoga or meditation or breath work or crossfit or functional fitness or anything and you think why is that well it's because the previous version of me no longer serves me and all of these things seem to coalesce around that late 20s period what have you noticed in yourself that's an equivalent well, for me, I was raised the, the first time I encountered this, um, the way Jordan Peterson says it, like shedding the deadwood sort of thing, or, you know, in Aubrey's example, like that shell that ends up cracking off on its own. You're not really, you don't have m- much responsibility for that shell growing and cracking sometimes. It just seems to, to happen. Time itself does that job for you, which, which is a little annoying. It's like you get thrust into these periods of growth, regardless of whether or not you wanted to be there. You may have felt content, uh, and it's like the universe robs that feeling from you all of a sudden and then you find yourself with a with a fucking cracked shell um but the first time this ever happened to me i was raised as a christian and through a a variety of different circumstances i found myself being unable to make the claim that i was a christian that's how i describe it Um, when people would ask if that's what i believed i would for, for a period of time, I would say yes, but I would cringe because I knew that there were problems I had philosophically with this belief system. And it was sort of the same sort of idea. I was maybe 19 or 20 at the time, uh, but it hurt. It hurt to know that I'm being forced into this period of growth that I didn't invite myself into, but I still find myself here every day. And for me, that that late 20s, early 30s timeline, right in that window was when I began... I began cringing at when people would say, what do you do for a living? And I would say YouTube drummer or the online drum teacher. That was my answer. That felt so inadequate. It felt like that was the same answer I had been giving to that question since I was a teenager, you know, 19, 20, 21. Um, and, and that felt, you know, <laughs> you, you said something very similar. You know, you would never want to have an interview with, let's say, a Jordan Peterson, a Douglas Murray, somebody prominent, and they go home to their wife or their spouse and they say, I had a fantastic um, podcast with the guy from Love Island. That something about that is just like, <laughs> like, God damn it. Like, that's not, that's not the title. I don't want that title anymore. Yes. It's not inaccurate. It's not wrong. It's certainly a part of your history. And at one point in time, you probably, you probably said that with a deep sense of pride. Yes, I am the guy from Love Island. And at, you know, you didn't do anything at all, but all of a sudden that just feels like a shitty answer. And for some reason, the identity of a pure musician felt like an inadequate answer. That's what started happening, where I, I, I don't want that to be the only thing that I have to, to tell people when they say, what is it that you do? I, I need to have a better answer, you know? Um, so yeah, sort of an identity crisis in a weird way, though I am still full-time in the drum industry, but my goal is to transition um, into uh, podcasting full-time effectively, but we got a little time to make that happen. Well, man, I think 
there's so much to say there that we do things that at the time are exactly what we wanted to do. But in the future, we don't want to be identified as that being our crowning achievement. For instance, right? So I was on Love Island the first season and fewer people have been on Love Island than have been to the top of Everest. Now, mm. I'm, not, I'm not equating the two, but my point is that there's not many things left that only a few people have done. So I have sure. absolutely no problem with people, with me being the ex-reality TV, ex-club promoter, ex-DJ, ex-model. Like, those are things. YOLO. Like, I, I had a <laughs> fucking good run of it in my 20s, man. Like, I had a... I was in the trenches, like, taking fire and partying and going to Vegas and Ibiza 20 times. And, you know, I, I did the things. Like, I did the things that you're supposed to do in your 20s. My problem is people that continue to live that lifestyle for the next two or three decades of their, of their lives. Because that's dangerous. And that's when the shell is, you've attached your sense of identity to the shell so much that you're terrified to get rid of it, that you don't know what comes next, that you have people around you that don't permit you to get rid of the shell. And that's a great point. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Like also novelty. We can't, we can't deny the lure of novelty. Like maybe it's just the fact that you're a bit bored of just saying musician, like yeah. you've completed it. <laughs> I'd completed being a reality TV club promoter guy. Mm-hmm. You'd completed being the online musician, drummer, teacher guy. The beating the game is the analogy I use all the time. I can still play the game. I'm actually really fucking good at that game. If I wanted to go play it, you would be amazed at how good I am at this game. The problem is it it, it has become novel. The replay value is is disappearing all of a sudden, right? Um, that that certainly happens as well. But you know, a more well, what I'm attempting to do in this this particular phase, which it seems like you and I both kind of find ourselves in, um, what I'm attempting to do is is lean into that discomfort as much as possible. And I encountered this in a very real way last year. I had a dog that I had raised since he was very young. I'd had him like 14 years. Um, he became paralyzed, so I had a special needs dog for a very, very long time. And you developed this crazy bond with like a special needs animal, you know, it was not something I signed up for, but it was really a beautiful experience. And um, he ended up, he had a heart condition and we had to put him down. And I had decided when that was happening that even though I'm thrust into chaos here, losing my childhood dog and this seriously very, very painful thing to go through, um, I was there for the whole experience. I leaned in to every moment of that experience. I felt the the super shitty, morbid feelings that come with something like that. Stared him in the eyes as they put the needle in and put him down, you know? Um, And as painful as that was, you know, in hindsight, it's been a year plus now, but man, what a wonderful way to have approached um, a sort of this big life-changing event. You know, it was a huge deal for me to lose that dog. Um, but the more I leaned into the discomfort that was that that situation, uh, the more I look back on that fondly. It was a really, really powerful growing experience. And I think the the amount of pain and suffering that I went through was only lessened by the fact that I leaned into that throughout the experience. And so as I as I watch myself separating from the music industry, so to speak. There's a pain involved, just like when I left Christianity. There's a pain involved in putting on this new coat where you're like, I don't want to fucking wear this coat. It doesn't fit me right. And the universe sort of says, well, you know, there's no other coat for you to wear, so try this one on, right? Well, that, think about that, it. Discomfort. Think about using the crab analogy, man. Like that you used to have this hard shell that protected you. You knew what it was. It was comfortable and convenient and familiar. And now it's just this soft underbelly. Yeah. And you feel exposed and vulnerable and you don't really know if it's going to protect you and you don't really know if it fits you and you don't know if another if another shell's going to grow. 
And another thing, talking about the dog example, leaning into the discomfort and and not hiding away from the extremes of experiences. So living life on the edge or living life to the edge is something that I've thought of for a very long time, that we nerf the difficulties and the um, uncomfortabilities that we find ourselves in far more than we probably need to. And when we look back on our life, do we really want to to say that I vacillated from 40% to 60% throughout my entire (laughs) life? I just had this little window within the middle. I never went to 100 and I never went to zero, ever. I never allowed myself to experience complete awe or complete dread or complete joy or complete despair. I just wanted to be fucking comfortable. No, no, I. that's not the sort of life that I want. And every single day, every single person has to battle against the desire for us to just sit in that middle. We want to be at 50%, comfortable, safe, yeah, repeatable. And that's, that, that's what you need to think of. Like that situation with the dog, you could have gone home and had a bunch of beers. You could have decided that you... I remember when my first dog died, I was like 13. So I wasn't, I wasn't bothered about personal growth, but I didn't want to watch her <laughs> die. So I stayed in the car and mum and dad took the dog in. So I stayed in the car and I said goodbye to her and I've got memories of saying goodbye to her, but I said goodbye to her at the door. So I stopped myself, whatever, 75%. I stopped myself there. I didn't want to go to 100%. Yeah, yeah. And this is what, for me, I, that's what I want. I want to be in, I want to feel 90%. I want to feel 10%. Sure. That's what I want. One of the things I think that my innate artistry, you know, I find myself, my disposition is far more conservative nowadays, but growing up, I was way more of an artist for sure. And some of my innate artistry has led me into that bouncing up and down with with the extremes. They're a little bit more interesting, especially when when you're young. Um, But but I've always told people that that same thing. You know, if you want to go on the entire ride, you have to be willing to go to that, to the 90 or sink all the way down to the 10. And it makes everything, you know, more enjoyable, um, you know, relative to other to other things. Right. Like it's classic analogy, but like the highs are only high if you've experienced the lows, the lows only suck if you've experienced the highs. And I don't know, I'm I'm with you, man. I'm a huge fan of going on the entire ride as it's meant to be enjoyed. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to chase the peak of ecstasy at all times, or you need to, you know, scrape the bottom and necessarily feel what it's like to die. And that's why I like that you said 90 and 10, not 100 and zero, because zero (laughs) is probably dead and 100, you'll you'll probably hate anything below that if you ever scrape up to 100. But uh well, ecstasy might get you get you kind of close, but we we'll call that ninety nine. The thing that you don't want is to just fear it. You know, I, it could very well be that I don't go through my life and I don't ever feel ten or ninety. Like I, I might just not experience a situation in which I get that low or I get that high. But I don't want to be fearful and wrangling, trying to control the world just in case it happens. I don't want to be so tight, holding on to life, trying to control it. I, the same as if you've ever had a psychedelics trip and if you try and wrap yourself around your ego and you try and hold on it's like it's like being sat on a, a rocket like a um firework <laughs> and you try and sort of swing it one way because you want to control it and it just goes and flies off on its own and you go okay yeah. like the only way that i can let this fly straight is by completely releasing so there's a a writer called jed mckenna who is a a spiritual writer that's written a series of books. He writes them under a moniker, so no one knows who he is. Uh, he doesn't He doesn't exist on the internet. There's no way to contact him, and he writes under this alias. 
But he seems like probably one of the most awakened people that I've ever met. And he speaks very, very uh, concisely, very, very straightforward. And he talks about releasing the tiller. So the tiller is the thing that you hold on the back of a boat that controls the rudder. And he talks about the fact that a lot of people throughout life, they're holding the tiller, they're gripping it as hard as they can. They're desperately trying to control all of the things because they think that if they can grip it a little bit harder, if they can steer a little bit better, that maybe, maybe they'll be, they'll be able to wrangle all of this chaos around them into order. But the thing is that we are finite creatures surrounded by infinite complexity. We are always going to lose that battle. If you try and force the world to adhere to what it is that you want it to do, it's just going to be a losing battle. And his um, recommendation, his advice is to release the tiller. He says, just let go. The psychedelic analogies are just so poignant sometimes. But I remember one that I, I might be stealing this from Sam Harris, but if not him, somebody in, the, uh, in that space. But he talked about if, if you and I were to get on a train and we were to, the tickets we bought were to go to New York. But we find out about an hour into this train ride that we're actually going to Texas. We're going to the wrong state altogether. And he, he talks about how you might manage your reaction. Are you the type of person who would get up and scream at the conductor and go, stop this fucking train. I'm not going to Texas. I bought tickets to New York. And, and you put up a fight. Or are you the kind of person that says, hey, well, the view, the view is still beautiful. And maybe we're going to end up in some different place that I didn't plan Looks to like go. Looks like we're going to fucking Texas. Let's, let's make the most of it. Let's make the most of a trip to Texas. Yeah. And of course, the analogy was a little more direct to like, this is how you predict how you might react to... Uh, I don't know, a, a suspiciously weird mushroom trip. They're all a little bit weird. But, you know, I always thought that that analogy was much more broad, right? That there's a lot of situations in life where you're, you're probably better off enjoying the view, not not gripping the tiller was the word? Tiller, yeah, T-I-L-L-E-R. Not gripping the tiller so tightly and, and allowing yourself to, to go with the flow. But do you ever find that there are some people who need virtually the opposite advice? Do you ever find that there's some people who... I don't know. They they let go too much. Someone who you that you would you would advise them to take more control over their life. People who are going with the flow in a way that that works against their well being. To be honest, I don't know whether this is a selection effect because of the sort of people that I spend my time with. But for most of them, they need to get out of their head as opposed to deeper into it. Okay. Almost all of my buddies, the meditation practices we do, the the embodiment, the breath work, all of that is in an effort to try and get ourselves out of our heads. Sure. Um, so I'm sure that there are people out there for whom they could actually do with being a little bit more self-reflective. And I know, I, I know that there will be. Spend some time thinking about where it is that you are. Just pay attention. Yeah. You know, pay real attention. Notice the details. Reflect on the details. Like there is beauty in having a level of dexterity and high resolution with how you perceive the world. Like I fucking love noticing tiny little things in the way that someone's facial expression changes as I'm talking to them on the podcast or, or the way that somebody opens the door or the way that somebody opens a, a bottle of water and drinks it. Like all of that stuff, it fascinates me. I love, I love observing details, but the problem with that is that you can't switch off. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that it, it's very difficult for you to let go. Now, for someone that never notices those things, there is a depth of beauty in the world that they're missing out on. Look, if you pay a little bit more attention, if you were a little bit more reflective, you would be able to see things. You would go from 1080p to 4K 
and you would go, wow, look at all of this detail that I was missing. But on the flip side, you also can switch off more easily. So, you know, it giveth with one hand and taketh away with the other. And the goal, the ideal goal is to be able to switch from the screen is off to I am in complete high resolution. That's what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to move between the two. And that's the goal that most people are trying to aim for. I think one of the reasons that I often deal with people who I try to get them to engage more as opposed to finding how to have the off switch or to to back out uh, is because I'm, I'm a teacher. So I deal with many people who want to take the study of rhythm or the study of drums. They want to bring that into 4K high resolution. And so it's a matter of getting people to pay attention more, to plug in more. Um, that, that's sort of what I deal with. It reminds me of, um, did you have Peter Crone on your podcast? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah, good dude. Same, same sort of idea, right? Where he has to wake people up in a lot of ways to pay attention to the things that are that are right in front of them all of the time. You know, I think part of that is educators have to deal with that, bringing that out of people. Yeah, I think you're right. He's also a really good looking dude, like which is, he is he's a badass man. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous of his. I'm jealous of some of his coaching fees. I had actually looked up on his website to see, and my goodness, I can't afford to uh, hire that man as a life coach. But he's he's just so brilliant. His podcasts were so powerful. I, I wanted to look up and say, what does this man charge? And oh, that's what he charges. I get it. It's like I get fifty it. grand or a hundred grand or something for a, a, like a weekend or something with him. Is it? It's, I remember 7,500 per week and it's paid monthly. So <laughs> they, li- they list the weekly price, but it's not really the weekly price. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, you're talking six figures per quarter to, to be with the guy, but really cool, man. I've, um, yeah, I don't know. I, the, the concept of life coaching, have you ever looked into that before? I know you've spoken with Peter Crone, but have you ever, uh, I don't know, have you ever gone down that wormhole? It's very interesting. So I've done productivity coaching. I've actually assisted with productivity coaching for a while. I was contracted to a company in Germany, so I was flying over there to go and give their guys a bit of help. And to be honest, a lot of productivity coaching ends up being life coaching. Like most people that think they have a time management or an attention management problem actually have a life management problem. That it's the reason that they're unable to focus at work is because they've got they just do not have an evening routine or they do not have a morning routine or they do not have a good relationship with their health or their fitness or their partner or their whatever yeah yeah the issues are wide (laughs) yeah so you go in being the guy that understands the pomodoro technique and how to prioritize time blocking and you end up being a a low-key therapist which was fine like i was happy to sit there and everybody was aware that i am not a professional do not heed this as medical advice blah 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 um (laughs) and i think a lot of people just wanted somebody to talk to but yeah i think the value of getting a coach generally is wildly underrated by most people there are some people that have taken that red pill and no look like if i want to get good at a thing just find the person that's really good at it and pay them to teach me how to be them like that's what you should do like if i want to become a good drummer i find a you and i say you know presuming that you have the resources to do it and i say look teach me teach me how to do the thing you know how to do this step by step find the person that understands the process this year i did a tedx talk at the start of the year so i found a speech and diction and theater coach all rolled into one. And I said, right, beautiful. Let's work on my presentation. Let's work on my cadence. Let's work on the way that I'm pronouncing my words and let's work on the speech. So did that and then kept working with him on the show. And then recently, uh, this week was my first session with my comedy coach. So I found a comedy coach because I want to become better at humor. So I want to be able to deploy jokes and I might do a little bit of stand up just so that I like have that skill in my repertoire, but it's all in service of the podcast. So I'm like, right, I want to become I basically want to learn how to be funnier. 
I want to learn how to be funny. <laughs> and I'm going to find a guy that teaches people to be funny. I didn't know that such a thing existed. Comedy coaching. I, I know there's improv classes. I would think of that. Definitely acting coaching as well. But comedic coaching, that's interesting. I would love to get some stories from your comedy coach because I I feel that there's got to be some people where the answer is just, it's a hard no. Like, this isn't for you, my man. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. Like, one out of 100 people with drums, it's actually like that. Like, I can teach almost anyone to play anything. But every but once you. in a while... Yeah, sometimes that fucking guy comes in. It's like, I'm sorry, man. Have you considered guitar? There's got to be something else here. But. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there very well may be that with... I'm hoping that's not me. I might be that one out of 100. But we had a, we had a really good session this week. It was it was funny, man. Yeah, it was, um, it was great. And there's something really beautiful about that. So it's something else as well that I've been thinking about, and you may be able to draw some analogies from the music world. Not many people treat their pursuits outside of athletics so outside of sport not many people treat their pursuit like an athlete and what i mean is that when you think about an athlete maybe one that's going to the olympics or somebody that plays for a professional team every single thing that they do in their life is geared toward maximizing their performance on game day everything mm-hmm. from their nutrition to their mindset to the exercises they do, to the drills that they run, to the way that they spend their social time, to their recovery, to their sleep, to everything that they do is geared toward them being in peak performance mode. Yeah. And yet I look at people that say, this is what I want to do. What do you want to do in life? I want to be a YouTuber. Okay, so tell me what you did on the morning that you recorded your YouTube video. Oh, well, I got up and I scrolled through Instagram for an hour on my phone and I didn't really sleep too much. I got four hours sleep the night before. And you think, okay, like... Why is that? Why is that that people don't have the same finesse? They don't treat their chosen pursuit with the same level of sacredness that people do when it's in athletics. And the reason I think is that because we're naturally lazy creatures, we presume that the parameters for success and failure are less, they're more loosely defined. So you don't actually know. Like I know if you beat me in an arm wrestle, or I know if you pick up 300 kilos off the floor in a powerlifting competition, or I know whatever. Very tight metrics for success and failure, and also very tight metrics for where you rank and where you were before and what you expected in training, and I was peaking, and this is what I, this is what I hit in the training hall, and this is what I should hit on the training floor and competition floor and stuff like that. But... There isn't the equivalent for YouTube. Like, you don't know, objectively, if this podcast is 10% better or 10% worse than your last one. It's just this sort of weird kind of messy sense. And I think that those degrees of freedom, they give us slippage to allow... We know that we can't judge our performance tightly boundedly. So we say, well, it doesn't matter because it's not going to show up in my performance tomorrow because who knows what makes for a good podcast performance? Nobody. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just makes me think like... Where could people be if we treated our chosen pursuits in life, playing the drums or being a podcaster or being a YouTuber or being an artist or being a sales manager or being a mum or being a dad? Like, what if you treated that with the same level of obsession that athletes treat their pursuit? The, the spectrum, as I see it, is athletes and artists. That's really, really the, the spectrum that I see. And you're right. There's a significant significantly larger amount of parameters and metrics by which you can judge the quality of an athlete. It's very easy to do so. And judging the quality or the success of an artist, as you said, is it is this artistic creation 10% better or 10% worse than your last one? And you're probably the best judge or the, the best 
most qualified person to answer that question, uh, which puts a tremendous amount of personal responsibility on on the person, right? You, you don't you don't necessarily have a coach. I suppose in, if you were taking music lessons, you would have that sort of thing. But you have to pay for that accountability and go seek it out. It's not built into the study of music or the study of art, whatever you're actually doing. Um, yeah, I... I I know exactly what you mean. I think one of the, one of the best examples of athletes who live and breathe their craft is bodybuilders because it it is such an invasive thing to pursue. Anybody who's done even just like, like as a hobbyist bodybuilder, someone who wants to to work out and change their diet with the intention of altering their physique in some way, you realize how invasive of a thing that is. This, this isn't merely an hour of your day that you have to sacrifice for this. You do have to sacrifice the hour for sure. But also, you're going to have to think about this from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed. Everything is a contributing factor. And it's, I always have a lot of respect for bodybuilders because I'm aware that what they're doing it fully consumes them. It's almost a selfish pursuit in that way. And it does make you wonder, imagine if you had a Kai Green or a Phil Heath that... that attempted to learn an instrument that way, that attempted to be a painter in that way, it really makes you makes you wonder if we're we're kind of scraping the bottom of artistry sometimes. If even the most talented artists that that one of us might name, that they're not even close to the level of drive, of ambition that a David Goggins has, right? Or military is another good example of the people that will just absolutely fucking kill themselves for this higher pursuit. Um and now there are musicians and there are artists who do that sort of thing, but they're incredibly rare. They're incredibly rare. And I don't, I don't know exactly why that is. I don't know. But I think it's because that spectrum is athletes and artists. If you're head in the clouds, full artistry, you're probably not going to, to look at things as though you need to have that much tact or that much strategy, but it would, it would benefit you tremendously if you did, you know? Yeah, man. I get it. So you talked about being a productivity coach. I'm sure that scratches a particular itch, right? There's, there's a, I imagine just an innate sense of meaning in that. Does being a podcaster scratch the same itch? Does it make you feel fulfilled in a similar way? Yeah, I think, to be honest, the productivity stuff, I, I, it doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I'm not gassed up to, to make people more productive. It's a, bit okay. tra- it's a bit transactional for me. And I did it briefly and it paid very well and it was fun and I got to go to spend time in Germany and meet cool people and stuff like that was sick. But the podcast does something different. It, it genuinely hits me existentially somewhere. You know, I, I genuinely believe that the conversations that I'm having are important, and maybe they're only important to me, but they matter. And you know, the messages that I get from people and the support and the the way that I the way that it changes my life. If that's a even you know ten percent of if other people are affected 10% of what it what it does for me then that's huge absolutely crazy um yeah it really does fulfill me in a way that i didn't know anything could cuz for a long time i'd been this club promoter right and i'd been filling nightclubs and i watched a million people go into events that i've run which is a, a lot of a lot of humans a lot of opportunities to impact people's lives but no one ever came out of one of my events and came up to me and said hey man you know, I was on the edge of despair or I was lost and alone or I didn't really understand myself. But dude, and then I when got I went fucked into that up club, at this club. Yeah. Yes, when I went into that club and I heard that banging hip hop music and those one pound Jaeger bombs, man, you changed my life. That never happened. So I'd spent a lot of time, 10 years of my life, having a commercial pursuit that I dedicated myself to that never fulfilled me 
in the way that my first podcast episode did. Wow. And then the first episode, and I got I got some messages from some people, and I was like, wow, like this is like it's like taking a drink of water when you didn't know that you were thirsty. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. It feels like being satisfied on a mechanism that you didn't know was there. And I could have done it in another way. I'm sure if I was a talented musician and I'd made people feel by playing music that was beautiful or moving to them, or if I was an artist and I'd created some work of art, or if I was a, an architect or a sculptor or anything, anything that had just caused people, you know, if I was a therapist and I'd helped people to get out of whatever situation it was, I would have gone, wow, like this really impacts me on a level below pure hedonic like raucous pleasure and sure that was something i didn't know that i needed and again this is another part of that manopause or the intellectual menopause menopause that's the word i'm going to use from here on out (laughs) yeah that's the one that's the one that i adopted it was the fitness menopause for a while but then the manopause um it was part of that i was like right this fulfills me in a way that i wasn't at 21 i wouldn't have given a shit Someone had come up to me and said, hey, man, like I was lost and alone and you club night really helped me. I'd be like, oh, cool. Uh, Is it your round? Like, I'm not bothered. Yeah. I wasn't fussed about that, but I was ready for it. And yeah, sort of when when I needed to find something that fulfilled me like that, I did. That's awesome. So on the topic of menopause, circling back to something we had talked about a little earlier, um, you know, you'd mentioned that you had a a good friend who has had uh, a third kid, right? On kid number three. Correct. And that, that your view of each kid had somewhat shifted. And um, it's really interesting to me because I, I feel like I know uh, many of your views on a variety of different topics, but I haven't combed through the archives of the Modern Wisdom podcast. And I realize one thing I've never heard you speak about before um, is your view of marriage. And it's interesting to me because I imagine if you wanted to be married, you would be. I don't imagine that exposure to to beautiful females is a problem that you've had in particular, but uh, it, it makes me wonder, um, what is your philosophy of marriage? Is that in your future? Is it something you've, you've given much thought to? I'm talking about this a lot at the moment or thinking about it an awful lot, man, the dating dynamics and stuff, because it's on the, the forefront of my mind. I wasn't fussed. Like I, I always presumed that I would probably end up in a relationship and sort of family was something that you thought that most people did, so you would probably do. But recently, increasingly, I'm really I'm really looking forward to being a dad. Like I can't wait to be a dad. Absolutely cannot wait to do it. Like I think a lot of the work that I've done over the last few years that's put me in a place that I feel like, you know, I give so much. I give a lot to the fucking entire internet for free and i can't wait to have you know a partner and a a kid or a couple of kids or something and i can just dedicate all of this bullshit and just harass them for 18 years lay it on them you deal with this shit yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) um but for real i i can't wait to be in a long-term committed relationship with a wife that i love in a house that's beautiful with a lifestyle that i adore and kids that i can spend time like to me and i think this is the equivalent you mentioned you've kind of taken a little bit more of a conservative uh tilt recently and more and more i'm learning the value of tradition like i'm realizing that many of the problems that we try and find solutions to have already been fixed. There's a quote from Shane Parrish that says, the the wise of every generation discover the same truths. And Donald Kingsbury says, tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problem. Yes, I love you're that like, Look, quote. Like, fucking stop trying to reinvent the wheel. I said this to Aubrey the other day. I was like, man, like, you need to be 
you need to be a particularly smart, like a degree of smart person to do polyamory or non-monogamy because it takes quite a bit of intellect to convince yourself that the thing that every single one of your parents did for all of history was wrong. Like you need to actually be quite smart to be able to convince yourself of that. But for me, yeah, family life, I can't wait for it. So the story with with my wife and I now, we got married under six months ago, but we had been together for about eight years. Um, so you could imagine some of the conversations that, that we had on year six, you know, not not engaged yet, right? Plenty of pressure from mom and friends and that sort of thing. But what had hung me up was this idea that it was uh, an impossible promise to make to someone. So I w- basically you're saying, I will never leave you under any circumstances. But if I come home and there's a heroin needle hanging out of your arm and you've killed the dog and you're, you're fucking the guy next door, I'm, I'm definitely gonna leave, right? So this idea that I would promise that I never will seems totally unsustainable. I really, I really can't make that kind of promise. And it was little philosophical hiccups like these that, that drug this out for a few years. But I heard a fascinating conversation one time. It was actually between Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan. And they had very contrasting views on marriage. The way that Joe Rogan described it was that you should date people you're interested in. You should, you know, you should enjoy their company. And if you find yourself in a position where losing them is just unimaginably painful, then you should marry that person. Ben Shapiro said you should casually date if that's what you want to do. But when you decide that you are looking for a wife and a life partner, you should make that decision and then enter the dating pool with the wife filter over your eyes. And I had felt that I had started dating uh, my now wife, Kelly. I had started dating her without thinking that this would be my wife. I didn't give a shit. I just thought she was cool, thought she was hot. But then we're three, four years in and I, I realized that I had never... I had never looked at this with fresh eyes and said, if I applied this wife filter and said, okay, I'm looking for the life partner and absolutely no one else, would I have picked her? Would I have even gone on the first date if that's what I was thinking? And I I had to take a couple years to answer that question, to pretend I had never met this woman before and would I pick you if I started from scratch? And for me, it turned out that the answer was yes. But in many regards, I felt that I got lucky because I wasn't actually seeking a wife when we began dating. And so I assume you're, you're single now, but what, what are your thoughts on this wife filter? Is that how you look at it now? Do you think that's the best way to do it? Or is it, do you think that you'll date someone casually and then find out that you got lucky and that will evolve into your wife? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one, man. So I'm dating at the moment, uh, but it's not, <laughs> we've only been together for a year. So it's, uh, there's marriage is not, is not on the, uh, not on the Sure, yet. sure. Um, so yeah, I think that you are right though, that both of those, the interesting thing about that story with Rogan and Shapiro is that both of those things can be true in the same world. Mm-hmm. Like you can date casually, not be ready for marriage. And then before you know it, go, oh fuck. Like, I have just found myself attached to this person who I can't consider. I don't want to be with anybody else. And then I apply the filter to it and I realize, wow. And they also fit all of the criteria that I wanted in a wife. And maybe they wouldn't have done had I been looking for them in that way. But during our time together, we've crafted each other into the partner that we wanted each other to be with and sure. you know all, all of this sort of stuff. But I also think there's, there's a lot of truth in what Shapiro says. And it's quite an unsexy... I mean, Ben Shapiro's generally an unsexy man, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> low as, sex appeal from Shapiro. That's correct, <laughs> yes. Um, but I definitely think that there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. Like, look, especially if you're a guy, like... If you're a guy that's got options and is available and is, you know, moderate status or high status, you can just keep on playing that fuckboy game 
for as long as you want to talk. Like I played, I, I've served my time and <laughs> you can just continue to do that, to just plug away being the party boy, being the guy that's, you know, breaks girls hearts or like can, can sleep with who he wants and stuff like that. But when you, when you change, when you start to think, okay, like, is this, is this what I want long-term? Are these the investments that I want to be making that contribute to my long-term goals? The same thing with how, what's the career that I've got? What's the profession that I'm in? What's the city that I live in? Who are the friends that I spend my time with? Are these people friends that I want to be with for the next 20 years of my life? Is this the city that I want to spend the next 20 years of my life in? Because as you get towards, as you break through the manopause and you come out the other side, (laughs) these are the sort of questions that you need to think because you're like fucking tick, tick. Yeah. Time is moving on. And you do not want to be making these decisions when you are 45. For all that you can stay fertile until God knows what time, like you want to make these decisions at a relatively appropriate age. I mean, we're already taking the piss. We're already, as guys, we are already taking the piss. Not being married at 30, at 33, what the fuck? You would be dead. On average, you'd be dead in seven years, ancestrally. Like, you are, oh yeah, you are living on borrowed time, my friend. Yeah. So yes, allow yourself to revel in some of the freedoms. And if you do not want to settle down, that's a life choice. But if you think that you might do, then start to ask these questions, you know, and even just stress test it in the dating market. Think, okay, let's say that I'm single and I'm not ready for marriage, but I'm, I'm going to date for three months or something and just spend a bit of time going out with girls and speaking to girls with this little filter on. And I'll just think like, okay, so... I'll just play around the next relationship or whatever, the next couple of relationships that I spend time with girls. I'm going to think like, okay, so what would I be looking for? What are the what are the red flags? What are the green flags? What do I think's good about it? What do I think's bad? Ooh, I would. So something that I've realized is that I, the girl that I spend the rest of my life with, she needs to be quite agreeable. One of the reasons for that is that I am, um, I, I, <laughs> And I let things drop very slowly. So if there is resentment or if there's bitterness or if there's power games or if there's disagreements, those go back and forth. If the other person is agreeable, I tend to be really agreeable as well. I'm kind of like a mirror. If the other person is disagreeable, I end up being super fucking disagreeable. And that is not a good situation. I don't enjoy being that person, but I can't switch it off. If the other person is being self-righteous or hypocritical about something, I'm going to point it out. I'm going to go, ah, 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 ah. Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that dick. So if the other, if if the girl that I'm with is a little bit more agreeable, what I've discovered during my sampling over the last 15 years or so is that I tend to have a much easier time. It's so free-flowing. She's happier because we're never arguing. The girl that I'm seeing at the moment, dude, we've never argued once. We haven't found anything to argue about. She is... yeah. She is super, super agreeable, which makes things easier. But it's not like I've been taking the piss. It's not like she's been rolling over. If there was something that I'd done, she would tell me that I was wrong. But just the manner in which it happens seems to be so easy. But I wouldn't have learned that had I not have been with... God, I've been with some disagreeable girls in my time, man. And like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're fun and engaging and stuff like that, but they are not right for me. And they might be right for my man next door or whatever, but mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. right for me. And the only way that you can get to know that is that you start to apply the filter. You start to think, okay, do I want, what sort of girl do I want? What works well? What do I value in a relationship? Do I value harmony or do I value, Jordan Peterson talks about this with his wife, Tammy, like he really likes the, the sort of the ping pong game, the back and forth. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah, Tammy yeah. is quite disagreeable and sort of feisty and flirty in a way. And um, 
it, maybe that's what gets him off. Maybe that's his thing. Maybe he really likes that in a relationship because it keeps him fresh. Good for you. Good for you, man. Fucking not for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an interesting piece of self-awareness to describe yourself as you know you're somewhat of a mirror right so you've you've learned by dating people who are you know disagreeable let's say that it brings out the disagreeableness in you and i've described this to a, a good buddy of mine um who has gone through a handful of breakups since him and i have have been friends and one of the things i told him one time i was just kind of spitballing but he came back to me after and he said man this was the most um the most dialed in piece of advice i've ever gotten after a breakup and it was that each woman you date or man, you know, you, you will you will likely learn something, something that sticks out as sort of the the key factor that the real takeaway from that relationship. And so for me, I have one one ex I can remember dating um, where one of our the real connective tissue of the relationship was rooted in humor. We made each other laugh all the fucking time. Uh, we, we were just really, really funny together. and We brought that out of, out of each other. The relationship didn't work. We were not compatible for a variety of other reasons. But I took that piece of humor and I put that on on a checklist and I just left the box empty, and but but I know now that at least the potential for connecting with a partner um, in a humorous way, I know what that is. I know what it can be, and so I'm going to keep humor on this checklist, and maybe one day I'll be able to check that box. There was another girl that I dated um, where, to be honest, like the physical chemistry, sex, was better than any other type of connectivity that I'd had before. And so I explored and learned what the potential for sexual, sexual chemistry could be. And we broke up, we were not compatible either, but that goes on the list. And each girl that I dated, I, I gained a new a new box on that checklist. And by the time you're ready to look for that life partner, you you've explored these potential potential connective traits that you could have with a partner. Um, and and so it's one of the things that makes a breakup a, a touch easier, I think, is you break up and you go, man, I added something really vital to this checklist. Now I know what to look for in any one of these you know, given domains. Um, and so for me, finding the wife was a matter of checking as many of those boxes as I possibly could. Some of them are half checked, where it's like, well, maybe the connectivity I had in this particular domain was stronger with another person, but it's not zero here, right? But anyway, to me, I always, I always really liked that analogy. It made me feel more qualified to make that final decision where I said, this is the one. How do I know that? Well, I know that because I've explored all these domains and I have a better sense of what I'm actually looking for now. Yeah, man. It's, relationships are a weird one. When you piece it together, when you think about what it is that you want from a partner and then the one that you end up with, sometimes, you know, I've got buddies whose partners are just so left field. If they'd written it out on a piece of paper, you'd be like, where the but what about all of the boxes? <laughs> you said you had all of yeah. these boxes and they, yeah. they don't take any of them. And they're like, yeah, but they just get me and it works. And you're like, well, brilliant. And that's, that's where- That's true. That's one of the things where I think throwing the baby out with the bathwater with conservatism around uh, dating for young guys is a bad idea. Just find your sweetheart at 20 years old and settle down. Like you are going to, there's a chance that you might get it right, but there's also a bunch of chances that you might get it wrong. It's a higher risk way to approach it, for sure. Yeah, you're just not as experienced in all of these areas. You know, even with like mitigation, like let's say that the first time that you get into an argument, you just can't control your emotions. You're just unable to control your emotions. And then you end up breaking up with that girl. Like that could be the wife. That could be, if yeah. that's the marriage, like that's your wife, that's it gone. And you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I have, I've, I've had a buddy who's said before about a girl uh, described her as, um, she's the perfect wife, but she needs to go through a divorce first. 
what a what a statement <laughs> yeah but he was just basically saying like look there are some elements like this person is perfect and there'll be guys that are exactly the same like he's a perfect husband he just needs to go through a divorce first yeah like, there are situations where someone someone has certain elements of their personality particularly something like a, maybe a disagreeable tint or a, a lack of compromise or something else that just they need to have that rounded off they need to just sand that edge a little bit sure and a lot of the time difficult situations may cause that and maybe maybe somebody needs to be more assertive maybe someone's being too agreeable and they actually need to be walked all over in a relationship to learn that they're never going to settle for that again yeah so it can happen in a bunch of different ways but there is definitely wisdom to be learned from past failed relationships i remember we had a, a some good good friends of ours that at the time um, you know, Kelly and I, my wife, and this other couple whose names I won't mention, but they were they were younger than us. They were like 18, 19 when they got married. You know, Christians, and obviously there's a, a race to get married in that world because, you know, you're told to feel guilty about having sex. But um, so they did. They raced. They got married in under a year and immediately had their first kid. And we would just... Kelly and I would stand back and go, can you believe these people? Like they just threw everything away right away. They, they rolled the dice on this marriage. You barely knew each other. They brought a kid into the world and now they're screwed. If they wanted to have these big flourishing careers, it's going to be 10 times harder. And we've stayed friends with them and they've since had two kids and they're working on their third. And they're fine. They're totally fine. Now it feels like they just got a fucking head start on us because now we're we're about 30. Well, I'm 31. Um, we're trying for the first kid. And then here we're meeting their kids and their kids are like seven. And it's like, God damn it. We could have had a seven year old if we pulled this fucking trigger back in. Dude, you could have had them out of the house by 40. They could have been left by 40 years old and you yeah. could have been free. Yeah, but it's just that that contrast is so funny. Feeling like they made the mistake, and now it's like, you know, in hindsight, we fucked up. We should Here's have pulled the, the trigger much now. sooner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, they they did take a risk. I think objectively, those people do take a risk to get married at nineteen. Like you're on paper likely a fucking idiot. It's just if you and the idiot that you married can turn into not idiots and help each other, you know, carve that stuff out. I think it's beautiful because I think you get more time on the planet with the most important person in your life. And then you apply that to kids more time yeah. on the planet consciously with your children. Yeah. I mean, what people would give for that on their deathbed, you know, just to have had Dude, your kid that's, five that's years earlier. I've never thought of. I've never thought of the fact that the longer you wait to have kids, the less time you get to spend with your kids overall in life. But yeah, Think about, you know, those halftime shows at the basketball games and they get some fat guy out of Rose Ed and they say, hey, you're going to throw this for half a million dollars. And he sort of runs up and he's like wiping Cheetos off the top of his T-shirt. <laughs> and he just like, he throws it and it comes out of his arms sideways, but it goes in and every, yeah. no one can believe it. And you're like, well, you know, some people get that with marriage as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this, that you should have a child by mistake so you don't have time to think yourself out of it. That like having a kid on accident at 2022, <laughs> it'll, it'll like you're going to have a lot of people angry at you and uh, it's going to feel like a fuck up. But by, by the time that kid is 18 and out of the house, you'll be glad that you're, I don't know fucking 35 or something, right? It's just a totally different way to do it. So you've had a lot of guests, uh, a lot of awesome guests on your podcast recently. Um, I remember you had posted maybe a month ago, like a long list of upcoming guests. Anybody that sticks out, who are you particularly excited about that you've talked to recently? So Aubrey yesterday was a special one, man. Like that guy is... Special guy. Yeah. 
very very awakened and i was the first time i was going to speak to him i really wanted to test it i was like all right yeah 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 psychedelic warrior big dick podcast guy like i'm gonna fucking i'm gonna run (laughs) rings around this guy polyamory dickhead and then i sat down with him and within five minutes i was like this guy's the real deal yeah very very aligned incredibly self-aware uh all of the ego or most of the ego has been dissolved to the point of more than pretty much anyone else that i've spoken to wow so Aubrey's episode will go up next week um which will be it was fucking great it was really beautiful uh brett and heather uh so brett weinstein heather haying they're coming on to talk about their new book cool that'll be good uh robert green is releasing a equivalent of the daily stoic but about his laws so he's got those law- the laws of human nature and he's doing a daily journal thing that you read one page a day, but it's about his stuff, kind of like Ryan Holiday did. And I've got Ryan Holiday on on Monday about his new book, Courage. Courage is Calling. Um, Courage is Calling. So that's that's his new one. So he'll be good. Uh, John McWhorter, uh, who is a, a really interesting thinker, he'll be good. And then I'm actually about to try and uh, take a step into the lion's den so to speak, and 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 bring on some more left-leaning uh, thinkers. I've had a lot of people from sort of the center and the center-right. So you Jordan Peterson, you Gad Sads, you Douglas, Douglas Murray, Murray. And, uh, Andrew Doyle, Zuby, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what I've realized is I, I genuinely don't think that this outlandish example from libs of TikTok and then reacted to by the right to say, like, look at how crazy the left's going. Like, the liberals are out of control. I, it's just not a it's not a sustainable cycle as far as i can see and i know that there must be well-meaning people well-reasoned people on the left who know that this is a fucking permanent own goal that they're just constantly shooting themselves in the foot every time that they attach themselves to this identity stuff so i'm interested in finding out what the rehabilitated new forward-thinking reasonable left side of the aisle has to say so i just yesterday confirmed david pakman do you know who david is i do know david pakman yeah yeah so he's got a huge channel big sort of very left-leaning as well yeah correct and i i mess i was completely open with him i was like hey man Mm -hmm. i've had loads of people from the right on and to be honest i want to hear what the well-meaning left has to say like this isn't a fucking gotcha thing i'm not getting you on to go like oh and what about what about what biden's done with the vaccines like i'm not bothered about that i'm bothered about saying look do you think that this the, the crazy outlandish stuff like what's it like to be someone who is attached to the thousand genders people what's it like to be someone who is who is attached to like tell me tell me what it's like and i really want to fucking sink into his position on it mm-hmm. uh, and there's a couple of other people so contrapoints is another potential uh noam okay. chomsky is another potential and then ben burgess is another so i've got this sort of i'm trying to play chess with cancel culture a little bit and <laughs> think like okay well what, what uh, david's a fucking really really interesting guy i just don't sit in the same position as him mostly when it comes to politics. Sure. But I don't sit in the same position as him when it comes to politics when it's framed in the way that the internet's doing it. And, you know, for all that I fucking adore Ben Shapiro, like I've listened to his show religiously throughout all of last year because it's a daily show and when the news cycle is fast like it was at the beginning of COVID, it was perfect because he'd synthesized each day what was happening and you needed someone to tell you something every day. Mm Mm-hmm. But even with Shapiro show, Matt Walsh show, I fucking adore and I think is one of the funniest people on the internet from Daily Wire. He's a funny man. The, the man is a genius. 
even with him, I'm like, oh, God, okay. Like, it's another stupid leftist doing some stuff. But, like, right. is that a straw man for the entire position of people that are on the opposite side of the aisle to you? I, can't, I simply have to have more faith in the reasonable people on the left that they are not attaching themselves to these obvious own goals. Like, it just has to be there. Or, or that's my hypothesis. So I want to stress test that. So I'm going to get David on, and he mentioned if it goes well that he might put it on his channel, which would be great because he's got like fucking over a million subscribers six now, six times as many subs as mil. Yeah, he's got one and a half million yeah. subs, and I think it would be you know if you were to have that conversation, really well-meaning, well-reasoned, calm, insightful, that would be like I've never seen anybody have that conversation. I genuinely haven't seen anybody have the conversation asking someone in his position on the left, look, man, like really. What do you think about all of this madness and how do you guys move forward in a way that doesn't alienate normal people? Yeah. How do you get yeah, yeah. how do you get away from identity and get back to class because that's what the left was supposed to be about. So that's those are some of the guests and that's a direction that I'm thinking of in the future. Awesome. That's a beautiful goal, man. I think one of the things that you find when you have a an intellectually honest and a, a hate-free conversation with somebody who disagrees with you politically is you actually get to the root of the issue instead of making hours and hours of content on the gotcha moments. And as much as I, I enjoy Matt Walsh, he's one of the ones that's quite guilty of that, like doing a compilation of, of liberal TikTok teenagers. Like, man, this is like, <laughs> it's just like throwing an apple in the air and smashing it with a fucking <laughs> baseball bat. Like, it's, I understand we can do that all day and watching that apple explode is really fun sometimes. Like, I, I get it. Um, but it, it sometimes feels like they're not engaging with the real substance of the argument. And it also it allows conservatives to forget that there is substance to the argument of liberals. We just are. are it, it's like sometimes conservatives like to pretend that that argument doesn't exist anywhere, that there's no one capable of articulating a credible argument for, you know, whatever the, the position is. Um, and it's a shame that you have to, like, really, really seek that out. Like, it feels hidden for some reason. Um, but, you know, Sam Harris is a good example of someone who will sneak in a progressive Aggressive view, and obviously it is. It, it's been exhausted on an intellectual level. It's really hard to argue with him, and I, I always enjoy stumbling across those lefties like that. It feels like they're rare, but but they're they're their own kinds of gems because it it they, they put you right to the source of the problem, which is what I actually care about. the The gotcha stuff is super fun, but I, I've grown tired of it. It sounds like you have too. Same man, yeah. So I was on GB News, which is kind of like the. The UK's equivalent of Fox News-ish. It's like a new-ish, relatively new news channel. It's a bit more about characters and kind of controversy a little bit, and there's personalities on it. And it's a bit more, it's center, center right. And um, fuck man, like I, I loved it. It was with my buddy Andrew Doyle. He hosts it. It was amazing. He is phenomenal. I was with this guy called Scott Capuro, who's this gay comedian that was so witty, and I adored the afternoon. But like one of the segments was reacting to someone on TikTok saying that the the word curry is racist. And I thought like, so I get it. Like I understand why this segment works. And I, I'm, I, my point was like, I, I don't think that this is the best use of anybody's time, but I understand yeah. why, why everyone feels we can't cede ground to these ridiculous people saying ridiculous things because then they're going to win. And what you have, like here's, here's fucking something, man. Like the left needs to be better to make the right better. Like, I'm aware that that's a, oh, so you're saying that the right can't, it's not responsible for its own views. No, I'm not saying that. But the way that politics seems to work in my bro science, tiny little worldview of it is that the left proposes things and then the right stops them from happening. 
Like, the right doesn't actually end up proposing very much almost ever. Conservatives conserve. That's what they're trying to to do. Yes. It is the job of progressives to try and make mistakes, and it is the job of the right to try and make sure that they don't happen. Like, that's how it works. So Mm -hmm. what what you have at the moment, the endless cycle that we have at the moment is ridiculous thing from the left which gives the right this outlandish reactionary um, paradigm that they can operate within that misrepresents presumably a broad group of people that are well-meaning on the left that don't identify with all of the identity politics stuff but it traps the right in this endless cycle of as you say it's very satisfying to watch someone who's obviously ridiculous views are completely sideswiped by matt walsh that is like a nuclear warhead meets a sniper rifle when it comes to being funny being funny with ridiculous stuff like it's fucking satisfying but it doesn't actually get us anywhere it's a thing that doesn't really matter from someone that doesn't really matter being reacted to by someone that should be reacting to something more impactful and more important than that correct and you think right it's just this endless like purgatory you're just in this uh limbic zone you know like it's just there's nothing going on in this and i've watched it now for so long that i think yeah there's there has to be more has to be more to it i heard an argument recently that absolutely blew my mind having seen shapiro and walsh and knowles and that the the Daily Wire crew, all of them, um, dismantling transgender arguments, which always seemed relatively easy to me because we we start with biological men are not biological women. And sort of that, that kind of covers all of your bases, at least if you're trying to argue against the, the liberal TikToker insanity, right? But I stumbled across a YouTube channel of a guy. I want to say his name was Rausch, R-A-U-S-H. Yes. He's a lefty, right? Yeah, yeah. And he proposed, I haven't watched much of his content at all, but I clicked it and I watched him get in for 10 or 15 minutes onto the transgender issue. And he proposed a completely different perspective that I had never heard addressed by Shapiro, Knowles, or Walsh, or any of them. And uh, the way he described it was, you could very well have a word, like, let's just say woman, but for example, uh, think about the word human, where at a certain point in time, we had... We had the definition of the word human did not include black people, and that was the accepted definition of that word, right? But the argument is that we got the word wrong, that we had to redefine the word itself, that this has actually happened at certain points in human history. And his argument was that when you say women, you are not necessarily including the the biological element of that description, right? To me, I don't, ne- I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I think you actually do imply a tremendous amount of biology. But that is a really interesting fucking point that we can sit and talk about. It's a semantic argument for sure. Um, but that, that's much more interesting. It's much more credible. And it has nothing to do with arguing that chromosomes don't exist or that there are negligible differences between men and women. That's all insane territory. But the argument of defining the word woman and what implications, whether biological or sociological, are built into that term, that's actually a really fascinating discussion to have. Um, and so that was one example of like clicking a left video and being actually surprised like I, why don't i hear shapiro having this discussion because i know that biological women are not not women but i don't need to hear that point just smashed home over and over so i would hope that in your conversation with pacman that you'll stumble across some of those where it's just it's far more interesting than it is offense offensive or just blatantly wrong right that there's actually good points that that are worthy of a deep dive the problem as well is that it's so high pressure at the moment like it's super high velocity no one is having 
Well, very few people, it would seem, are having these sort of conversations. And the ones that do, they're not popular. Because, like, say what you want about Shapiro. That man can fucking move traffic. He is a traffic weapon. And yeah. so are the rest of the guys <laughs> at the Daily Wire. And then look on the other side of the aisle. Look at ContraPoints. You know, like this is a or David Pakman or uh, Sam Cedar. You know, these people are fucking traffic weapons. They are. But the reason that they're traffic weapons is that they've got simplified arguments. I am not the fucking man to find out the nuance of these arguments, but I might be able to poke some questions and get someone that does know what's going on to actually give me some answers. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think like good faith, like genuine good faith, left to right communication just simply does not exist at the moment. I can't remember the last time that you had a Shapiro versus a, you know, even a Shapiro and a Harris talking about Trump or whatever. Like it just wouldn't, I don't think they had that conversation publicly, but it just wouldn't go down nicely. Yeah. You know, you had the, that gotcha moment between Ethan Klein and Steven Crowder and Sam Cedar where they switched that thing around. And it, it, it was so explosively brief that it finished before it started. Like it did, that was, yeah. If you want to have a fucking synopsis, the footnote to current left versus right communication is Ethan Klein with Stephen Crowder and Sam Cedar bumping in. Like that's it. You just need to watch that ten minute clip. Like, yeah, a thing was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be in good faith. It looked like it was in good faith, and it was burbling below the surface. One person did a shitty thing, so the other person does a shitty thing back, and then it all ends. And you're like, yeah. that's it. No that's discussion. Communication. Had. It's that's over. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Game over. And I would have honestly loved to see the debate. It, I, it would have been awesome. But I do understand, yeah, Steven Crowder's, his bow out of that was based that he doesn't want to begin a debate based off of a lie. And I'm, I'm empathetic to that. I do understand. Um, but on that said, can you guys just fucking reschedule and have a have an actual debate? Well, it would yeah, have been nice to fucking, see it, yeah. you know? Or, or why not with Ethan say, look, man, like, I, I'm not going to do this. Like, would you mind if I brought Sam on? It's like, with that situation, it was there was, I, I, you know, trying to put my priors aside. It it does feel like a shitty thing for Ethan to do to try and do that. I thought it and was. Like, that was my impression. Realistically, like, what was what did you expect the outcome to be? Like, what did you expect the outcome to fucking be of doing of trying to get a gotcha moment on someone within seconds so that you can go as soon as you finished and then as soon as they finished up it was this real juvenile like yo bro we got him ha ha, ha we got him yeah just, and and Crowder did the same thing like like yeah. what a piece of shit and then have that conversation for forty five minutes like that's a topic of a show yeah here's the yeah thing. they did the here's same the, thing here's the fucking game man both of those separate groups of people know that that's going to generate views yeah so you have <laughs> of perverse incentives. You have perverse incentives. Everybody is bothered about getting clout. How can we get clout? Okay, well, let's fucking play this forward. And nobody's thinking, how do I have the best conversation? Or most people aren't thinking, how do I have the best conversation that adds the most value? What they're doing is playing this sort of like one step removed game of how do I have a conversation that lands well with my audience that portrays me in the way that I want to, that algorithmically manipulates people, uh, the, the manipulates the platform, that limbically hijacks people so that they get engaged because that's further going to propagate the platform. How can I mm-hmm. utilize this across multiple different... I'll put the Twitter thing and then we'll explain the drama to go out like that. And I'm sure that there will have been a degree between them, although they'll, they'll rarely bring it up. There'll be a degree of like kayfabe like WWE wrestling yeah. dramatization, you know, the puffing up of the chest and it's performative and that's fucking cool. I like the performative things. Like 
we do it with you can do it with people that you're good friends with like me and douglas murray do the performative thing like when we have when we do episodes together that's fucking cool you can almost play your role like in a good dance routine sure maybe today it's salsa maybe today it's you know whatever the charleston but the vast majority of these the interesting things and the valuable things in conversations aren't from the performance they're from the insight and it's there's not a lot of insight and there's quite a lot of performance at the moment one of the things that has helped me solidify some of my larger picture political views has actually been sort of the the archetypal messages that you get from characters like Aubrey and Jordan as well. Um, I, I love looking at the the left as sort of the archetypal mother. That's where it, it quantifies all of the nurturing, empathetic um you know, I don't know, all of those qualities that go underneath the, the domain of the archetypal mother. That helps me quantify what the left is. And then I see the archetypal father, sort of the the heroic protector, tough love, disciplinarian nature of an archetypal father. Um, and it, it makes me feel as though what we're watching now is some version of a divorce, that a healthy functioning democracy involves this marriage of the left and the right. And something is really beautiful about that. It's beautiful because you're so fucking opposite, but there's this beautiful mediation of chaos and order that happens um, when that balance is struck. And there's something very morbid and very sad about watching what feels a lot like a divorce. It feels like, you're you know, you're your supposed to break up in front of you. Yeah, that's a lot what this feels like. You know, I, I would I would really hate to hand the reins over to either party and, you know, watch it go in either in either extreme direction i would hate to see that happen um and i think one of the ways jordan peterson articulates it is that it's a dance it's a it's a dance into eternity and i've always felt this is something that founding fathers recognized and sort of set into motion and what we're watching is a uh, it's the end of a 260 year marriage and man if that isn't really really fucking sad i mean it's sad when people break up after a year or 20 or 30 you know think of a of a couple that gets a divorce after 50 years of marriage and how how much more sad that is than a high school breakup and then think about two giant bodies of people with these archetypal profiles that are supposed to be married with all these beautiful stories all throughout American history. And to be, to be alive for that, what seems to be that divorce, and that might take the form of a civil war or, you know, who knows what that's actually going to look like. It makes me more sad than anything else. Not, not quite as scared, just sad. That's the feeling that it gives me, you know, but I'm happy that, that guys like you are able to to not play the ideological game, but rather be on the sidelines and sort of try to be a mediator between these two people, like acting like a fucking therapist between David Pakman and Ben Shapiro going, hey, can we can we get into a room and talk about this for a second? Functionally, I think that's what podcasts like, your, like yours do. Yeah, maybe. But I, I, notice my, I notice myself get captured as well. Like, you know, there's periods where you, you find success and you know that talking points and guests are just going to get you fucking tons and tons of views. So... Yeah, you you grow along with it. You learn out loud and you practice in public and you hope that the audience has sufficient faith that over time you're going to get closer and closer toward the target. And um, I think I did. Like, you know, if I was to be critical of myself, I think I did probably sink into too much of the IDW adjacent stuff last year. And I didn't provide a counter narrative. I didn't provide enough good faith argumentation from the left. You know, I didn't stress test the ideas sufficiently that came from the guests that did come from the right and i did sort of give them a free free reign to be able to say whatever they wanted uh, because for the most part it, it seemed to confirm my existing biases like i had this particular worldview coming in that yeah the left's ridiculous and this you know this blm auto autonomous zone stuff is fucking stupid where did they think this defund the police is a moronic cretinous thing to try and think of doing so 
and then you just roll it forward and you permit those biases to carry you through but that's not like a ver- an intellectually virtuous way to try and do what I want to do I want to try and find out something interesting and something true and and something novel as well you know and mm-hmm. well let's see I might go into this conversation with David Packman and just start berating him about the transgenders or, or something but you know that's not the intention <laughs> like I'm not I, I can't do that and I don't want to do that so I'm sure that it won't happen very well said man awesome I'm very excited for all those upcoming episodes and man thank you so much for doing this today I had an awesome time talking to you brother my pleasure man this was really really good considering that you are whatever 20 episodes in or something like that you're crushing it awesome thank you man I appreciate the kind words and the time we will uh, catch you next time brother Keep in touch, man.